gonna tell you a story. So once upon a time, there was a gal named Judy Lynn Del Rey. Well, her name was Judy Lynn Benjamin at first, and she was a fan. Fan culture was a little bit different back in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. They didn't have big superhero movies, so the comic cons of the 1950s, they had authors, sci-fi authors, fantasy authors. These were people like Joseph Campbell, who ran a sci-fi magazine, or Isaac Asimov, who wrote the book I, Robot, and Philip K. Dick, who wrote the book that had become the movie Blade Runner. Judy Lynn Del Rey loved this stuff. She ends up marrying a guy who is a sci-fi author, but she likes it more than the average fan who showed up back then, and there weren't many of them. She got involved with Galaxy Sci-Fi Magazine. Slowly but surely, she worked her way up to become an editor at Ballantine Books. She had an eye for a good story. She knew when a story would click with audiences. She understood that they wanted old-fashioned works, things that were adventurous and not too, not too weird. Weird in a fun way, yes, but weird in a, now this guy's gonna talk about how to make a nuclear bomb because he's a scientist type of way? Not so much. And yeah, that was a type of sci-fi book back in the day. They're boring as heck. She ends up getting her own imprint. It's called Del Rey Books. If you're ever at a used bookstore and look in the weird sci-fi book section with all the funky pictures of aliens on the front, check the spine. It's probably a Del Rey book. This was an intensely male-dominated field, but somehow G. Lynn Del Rey became the boss of this field. Del Rey Books put out the best sci-fi of the time, she even signed George Lucas before Star Wars came out so that her company could publish the book that would be based on the movie. She made millions off of it. There's another fact about Judy Lynn Del Rey that's important. She had dwarfism. She wasn't more than five foot tall. And yet, despite this, what people would call today disability, she made friends with the biggest sci-fi authors of her day, signed them to her company, and published books that people read, and read a lot. If you were ever to visit me at my home, in my study, you would find, I say study as if I have a study, it's a guest room with a desk in it and some bookshelves. But in this study, you would find her books lined up across my wall. I collect them. I started collecting them for the art. It's beautiful, if a little strange. But now I collect because of her. She's someone who conquered the field that she was in, despite everything being against her. I love that about her. Today we're talking about book publishing. This is Intro to Mass Media. Books can get me deeper into something than a website can, or a podcast, or even a documentary. They're dense. They take me days or weeks to finish, and they sit with me for months. People say that our generation doesn't like to read, but I know different. We need the right book, that's all. The book that speaks to us, that knows our world, and lets us into another one. Just yesterday, I finished reading Notes of a Native Son by James Baldwin, and I'm currently reading a collection of newspaper and magazine reporting on the civil rights movement in the 1950s. 
I'm getting deeper into this nation's past, and it's making this nation's present come alive for me. I believe the thing that people say, that you're no different year to year except for the people you meet and the books that you read. But the industry that produces books is pretty weird, and now more than ever, the power to publish a book is in people's hands. You don't need money anymore. All you need is Amazon.com and the book that lives inside your head, or on the sheets of lined notebook paper, or in a discussion thread, and it can be real. Books have existed for thousands of years, but they were all made by hand. The first printing press was made in the 1400s, the same century that Columbus doomed America by finding it. Books were expensive, but there are suddenly so many more of them. Only the most educated, and by that I mean the most rich, were able to read back then. The printing press was the real beginning of taking words and giving them to the people. It'd take time, but books would end up everywhere. They would be the very first mass media, the first piece of media that would go out to an audience bigger than what could fit inside of a room. The first books were these massive, gaudy things. As the printing press evolved and the industry standardized, we ended up with a collection of three primary kinds of books, hardback, paperback, and mass market. Hardbacks are the most expensive. I popped into a Barnes & Noble a couple weeks ago and found a new hardback that I wanted with a price tag of $35. Honestly, that seems crazy to me. I love books, but there's no way I'm paying for $35 for one. Other people must have thought the same as me because presses started printing paperbacks and selling them for cheaper to everyday people. They made something called dime novels, cheap horror, sci-fi, or romance novels that didn't cost much and that the everyday person wanted to read. They were like the popular television shows before streaming. People really got into these things. Some novels were published through magazines, one chapter at a time, and people would talk about them, as if the new chapters were new episodes of their favorite television show dropping every Friday night. There are new formats today. Ebooks have been embraced by many, for instance, especially by older audiences that have trouble holding heavy books and who need access to large font. The textbook says that 11% of all book sales are ebooks today. That percentage is a little closer to 18% right now. Audiobooks have been around for a while, and I freaking love them. I have to drive an hour into work every day, and they save my life. And fan fiction, well, it can get weird, but whole communities are forming around digitally published stories. Stories that no one pays for, but that everyone can contribute to. I am here with Sada Prescott. Sada works as a research associate at the University Library of Northern Illinois University, and he works specifically with NIU's magnificent collection of dime novels. Sada, how are you doing today? I am pleased as punch. So, uh, <laughs> so yes, it, it's pretty great getting to work with dime novels. Um, NIU is well known for having a very large collection, particularly of the first official series of dime novels, the ones that are branded dime novels. Uh, before the term generally meant any of a particular type of mass market fiction of inexpensive 
and um, say lowbrow origin. And when were these dime novels produced? So the heyday of the dime novel format came at the tail end of what's called the story paper era. Uh, story papers are uh, you know, large periodical things that look about like newspapers that would have serialized fiction in them. This is how Sherlock Holmes was um, printed. This is how Dickens got printed. So a lot of the writers from story papers migrated into the new format of dime novels, which were single pamphlet books of about 100 pages and would contain a whole story frequently reprinted from the serialized story of story papers. Um, so the heyday of dime novels was from about 1830 uh, to about 1930, with a real focus from the 1860s to the 1910s. Gotcha. What drew uh, authors and audiences to this format in particular? So this is a time period in which two things happened predominantly. The first is huge advances in technological um, stuff. You've got the train um, and you've got printing technology changing rapidly. So it became very cheap to print things and it became very cheap to ship things. At the same time, we also had huge growth in uh, public school systems. And so a much larger component of our population was literate, particularly young kids. And this combination also meant that um, children from uh, poorer families could easily hop a train to the city, get a tiny little job, and could afford to spend a little tiny bit of money on something. Gotcha. Okay. So these were available at a price point that really worked for audiences. Exactly. The average hardbound book um, cost about $5, which in today's money is around $40. It's kind of hard to plot that out. Um, but the dime novel is about like $10 in modern money. Uh, even previous formats would tend to cost about 25 cents. So the dime novel was really in there at a good price. And gotcha. And why did authors like this format as opposed to the serialized format? So part of the appeal of writing in the dime novel format was the quick turnaround on payment. Um, you weren't uh, shopping around to try and get it printed. You didn't take a hit on um, how much it cost to print the novel, and you didn't have to wait as long to get your paycheck, essentially. And like I said, a lot of the dime novels were printed very quickly. Uh, they typically came out on a monthly schedule and a later format called nickel weeklies um, which were larger uh, they look a bit like magazines today they started coming out weekly they were still called dime novels or weeklies and they contained the same sorts of stories so these would come out every week so you might be paid for your story weekly if you could write fast enough um wow Gotcha. Okay. What are some other things I should know about the dime novels of this era? So dime novels were scandalous. This was the trashy literature. Um, <laughs> famously, the music man has a line in the song, You Got Trouble, 
in which the con artist is telling the good home small town that bad things are coming to your children. And one of the things he mentions is dime novels. Um, these were considered like, you know, the thing that would turn your kid bad if they indulged in it. Because yeah, it in included you know, Wild West um, violence. There was a lot of murder. There was a lot of sexual content for the era. Um, and, and they were just you know, grim and pulpy and um, wild. Um, the other thing about dime novels is because they were considered the trash literature of the era, they were not valued um, by say museums or libraries it was it was garbage you would leave it on the train and you'd throw it in the bin or you'd use it as backing for other books so these were not valued items in their time sort of how we treat magazines today so it's pretty cool that you has this collection then if they weren't really kept around Yes. Um, like I said, the libraries flat out would not keep them. Um, at the time, libraries thought it was their duty to present only the highest quality canonical materials to the public. Uh, libraries were all about controlling what people could read, as opposed to modernly, where it's very much about um, the freedom to read anything you want. So we didn't have any real preservation in period of these items until collectors started getting in on the game. It's really through private collectors that we have any of these materials left. Um, and they operate a whole lot, lot like modern day comic book collectors in huh. trades, in communities, in, in nerdiness as well. Gotcha, okay. So, in addition to knowing so much about this dime novel community, you also know about the modern online writing communities. Are they, are they kind of, what are the crossovers between these two ideas? So, what you have to know about, like, the dime novel era is that this is the beginning of the mass market literary era. And it's also the beginning of a community of readers. Um, earlier, um, like in the 18th century and the early 19th century, it was more common for a book to be bought by an individual and be read by an individual or given as a gift between one person and another. And then the, the writings of those people might indicate that they had read said book. Mm -hmm. But cheap fiction and in newspaper formats, in dime novel formats and so on, could be bought by any member of a family then left on the kitchen table. So there was a more shared community around the reading. And if you were, say, a young teenage boy who's gone to work in the city, you probably have a whole gang of teenage boys around and you all share these stories together. So the dime novel was the beginning of the community around first dime novels. And then that migrated into a community around pulp novels which then migrated into a community around mass market paperback novels and so on. So the modern, say, like fan communities and modern writing communities have a whole lot in common with these um, 19th century and early 20th century groups of people. Gotcha. 
So if you want to be a writer today who builds a community like this, what are, what are your options? Well, currently we have another revolution in technology for sharing literature and having quick community buildup. Um, one of the things that you might notice if you look at uh, Nickel Weeklies, those are the weekly formats that look very much like comic books. They have you know bright, flashy illustrations and so on. But in the back, also like modern comic books, they have a letter to the editor style write-in section in the back. And people would talk to each other back and forth through these letters that were in this forum. Uh, and so this is just a spore version of what we have modernly. So there are many um, writing nexuses or nexi <laughs> um, throughout the digital spaces. There are communities on Twitter, for instance, that experiment with Twitter novels. Um, the fan fiction archive called Archive of Our Own um, is very famously run by the Organization for Transformative Works that has sort of codified the philosophical basis for fan communities and built the you know, programmatic structure for containing and supporting a dynamic community that writes fan works. Um, I should also mention that even back in the dime, dime novel days, there were fan works as well. Did you know that? I didn't know that. What'd that look like? So doing small press at home was a pretty uh, popular hobby for like, if you are a young nerd, um, you might be able to get access to or build your own printing press. And you might really like these stories about Frank Merriwell doing football, but you also really like these action Western adventures about Jesse James robbing trains. So maybe you write a story about the two of them playing baseball together and carousing around with their girlfriends. And you print it out on 10 pieces of crap paper with your home-built printing press and share that around. And we actually have some of those still today. Holy cow. So if yeah. they existed like in a published form all the way back and then, that's crazy. As soon as things get printed, fan work happens. It just is the case. Huh. So where do you where do you see the evolution of these fan communities here? Because I understand that there's one community that just recently won a literature award, the Hugo, right? Exactly. The archive of our own um, did win a Hugo for community building. Um, this is unprecedented. Um, also in fan community work, um, or rather I should say, Fan work is now being recognized as a valid literary output. Um, like several, uh, so Amazon famously has a program in which uh, they will publish fan work for certain IPs that permit that. And they'll even pay authors who are writing fan work. And big name publishers will look into fan work communities and see what authors are very successful in gathering fans and then court them for publishing. Um, the young adult novelist Cassandra Clare was one of these. She wrote in the Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings fandoms and is now a major seller for teen drama novels. Holy cow, I had no idea that was going on. Oh yeah. So, 
so if you have someone who who likes writing fan work, how do they get involved in these communities? What's what's the barrier to entry like? I mean, there's zero barrier to entry. Literacy and access to the internet is the barrier. Um, maybe some knowledge about good searching, but now that Archive of Our Own is very famous, and like I mentioned, there's the Amazon program. Um, it's incredibly easy to become part of this large internet community um, in a way that never has been the case before, even, even in the early days of the internet where fan work existed. It tended to be a very cloistered nerd group, but now it's become a much more public mainstream practice. And that mirrors really interestingly how dime novels became very mainstream from, um, from like I mentioned, you know, the, the book readers so, uh, solo experience of literature. Gotcha. Sada, I really appreciate you sharing me this information. Is there anything else you want to share with us before we go? Well, I would be remiss if I didn't, um, I suppose, advertise my uh, work with NIU is available for free to anyone um, via the Nichols and Dimes NIU repository of dime novels. Uh, these scans are available for anyone to do anything with. So if you want to take some really cool illustrations of wild men fighting bears and <laughs> repaint it and put it on a t-shirt, that's that you can do that if you want to read stories about Calamity Jane and write fan work about it and turn it into a published novel. You can do that. So um, check out some of these; they're really cool. Awesome! I will share the link for that. Sada, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. No problem. I hope you have a great time. All of the expense of a $35 book is offset by a few peculiar institutions. As long as we're talking about the business, we might as well talk about these. The first is the American library system. Libraries may as well be temples to me. I love visiting them, love checking out six or seven books at a time, reading almost none of them, and then returning them to get more. I have a problem. At libraries, you can get books, audiobooks, DVDs, and now even random things like electric drills, and check them out for free. Free's always a good thing, as far as I'm concerned. The average American went to the library 10 times in 2019, according to Gallup polls. That's twice as often as they went to the movie theater. Access to internet and computers, and the nature of the free service, allows libraries to be very valuable to underprivileged com communities. They also allow readers to completely bypass the cost of a book and enjoy it for free. When COVID happened, I had to stop going to the library. So I turned to the second peculiar institution, the used book market. Used bookstores are fantastic little places. They sell books for prices as low as $2 and they are filled with the smell of old pages. I have one down the street. It's actually kind of a double whammy because it's a used bookstore and it's run by the library and gets their books from the library. So it's, I can fill up a bag of books over there for a buck fifty. There's a lot of options for used books online too. And since I can't go to bookstores, I've been using them. My favorite is thriftbooks.com. For prices of four to five dollars and rarely more than 10, I can get used books shipped to me. Those are prices I can live with. I spent a lot of money on thrift books since March, 
What's crazy is that none of that money goes back to the publisher in the end. The publishers still have to put out books, someone buys them, and then those books end up being donated or tossed, ending up eventually with this company who sells them to other people. It's the thrift store model, but for books and as a reader, I love it. So how does the publishing field work normally? Well, it starts with authors spending years of their lives creating books. The art of writing a book is way too much to get into here. If you want to know about that, hit up the English department or my office. I love talking about book writing. I used to want to be an author. But the business side is sticky. Authors who make a career out of their work generally need an agent. This is a person that takes their book to publishers and tries to get it published for them. They have to pitch their work to this agent, not by sending the whole book, but, but, but by sending a proposal for it. They may also send this proposal themselves to an acquisitions editor at publishing houses. There are only a few major publishing houses anymore, like five of them, and they are massive. They have huge marketing departments, shipping productions, design teams, and editors. They handle the cover art, the getting the books into stores, the marketing of that book, and making sure all typos are ripped out of the work. In exchange for all of this, most of the money for the book goes to them. The textbook describes it this way. Say your book is being sold for 25 bucks. The offer receives what's called a royalty. That's 6% to 15% of that. So if a book sells, the author gets $3.75 out of the original 25. And then, you know, if the author has an agent, the agent takes 15% of what the author gets. In this case, that would be 56 cents. That leaves the author with just north of $3 for the sale of one book. Now that sounds crazy, and it kind of is. But here's the thing. It's nearly impossible to get your book into national book chains without the help of these marketing teams. It's not just that they know how to sell a book. They know people. They have built relationships with companies and can get books where they want them to be. If you want to be in a Barnes & Noble bookstore, it's going to cost you big time. And so you think to yourself, well, maybe I'll cut the agent loose, save myself 56 cents at least. But oftentimes, that agent is the only one who can get your work in front of those few big companies because they have spent the time building relationships. The result from this is that it is comparatively difficult to become a published author in the traditional sense and hard thereafter to do so full time. It just doesn't pay a whole lot, and it's very hard to get into the industry. I used to interview authors about their work, and by and large, most of them had second jobs, working in other book-related fields like teaching English or being a librarian. They get up early or stay up late and write for all they're worth. It takes incredible discipline, and it's unusual for them to get their first book published at all. They may write four or five books before their work is good enough to attract an agent or an editor. The business side of being an author is hard. So, Amazon created a backdoor. The self-publishing industry has been a thing for a while. It's often called vanity publishing. You'd go to some company who could print your books. You'd tell them how many you wanted, and it'd usually have to be at least a few hundred, a thousand if you want a good price. And then they'd print your book for you, no questions asked. 
You'd pay them by the book, something like 3 to $5 a copy. You'd decide the cover, you do your own editing, and at the end of the day, they give you a box of books. Boxes and boxes of books, I should say. It's up to you to sell them. A lot of people have done this, and a lot of people still have boxes and boxes of books in their closet. It's a good setup if you think you have an outlet to sell them, like if you go on speaking tours, for instance. Even in that scenario, though, you have to be ready to drop hundreds or thousands of dollars to get them printed. Do the math. If each book costs $5 a piece and you have to buy 1,000 of them, you have to go into that with $5,000. It's a rich person's game. But there's another way. I am here talking with Amber Thompson. She is a poet. She's been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and Best New Poets. And the least interesting thing about her is that she is my wife. Hi, Amber. Hi, Daniel. Thank you. You just published a poetry book earlier this year using Amazon Kindle Direct Publishing. I would really like to know a little bit about how, what that process looks like. Yeah, it was a really good process for what I wanted to do. Um, I knew I wanted to put out a small book of poetry known as a chat book. It's around 40 pages and it's uh, there's about 25 poems in it. And I knew that I didn't want to go through the traditional publishing route with um, an agent and an editor and everything like that. And I also didn't want to um, do just vanity publishing where I would end up with thousands of copies that I would have to sell on my own. So um, Kindle Direct Publishing was what worked for me. And there are other programs I, I'm sure that do the same thing too, but this put it on Amazon and it was really easy. So. So I imagine the first step in the process is you have to write a book, but what step-by-step step do you do after that? Well, the next thing that I did um, was decide the layout of my book, the order in which I wanted my poems to appear, and I used Adobe Creative Suite InDesign to lay out my book, but you can also use um, Amazon has their own program that you can uh, do your designs in and it looked like a pretty manageable program itself. And from there, I also uh, designed the cover of my book. So once I did those things, I submitted um, my manuscript and my cover image for kind of approval through the system and everything. And I think it was within an hour or so, maybe two, that I was notified that it was live on Amazon. And so at that point, I didn't want to tell anybody before I had a chance to have a hard copy of the book and check for any mistakes. So I uh, ordered a copy and I waited a week for that to come in. And once that came in, well, you and I both, we went over it and um, found a couple mistakes, uh, things like fonts that were different and a couple grammatical things. And we... Uh, again looked over that together and then I made the changes and submitted it again and I was uh, pretty comfortable with it being out and live on Amazon and so I was able to then share that with people. So I remember it taking you just a day from the moment that you wanted to put it on Amazon to the moment you were live and the proof was in the mail. 
And I just think that's incredible. But you talked about not wanting to get boxes of books. I'd like to hear a little bit about the cost. What does it cost to get your book on Amazon Kindle Direct Publishing? It costs me nothing up front um, and really nothing at all when you consider that what they do is there's kind of a, a formula they use that you set the price of your book and then subtract the cost um, it is to print the book. So I set my book price originally at $4.99 and they, uh, it cost them $2.15, I believe, to print my book. Um, so they subtract that from the $4.99 and whatever's left, I get 60% of that. So when I had my book at $4.99, I got 84 cents back. So that's not a lot. Um, but I wasn't, I, I wasn't out anything, you know, so that was close to a dollar per book. When I raised my book's price to eight ninety nine, um, I ended up receiving closer to $4 back on my royalty. Yeah, that's really incredible. So you upped the price a little bit, but originally it was just really cheap. So like people could buy it. That's so different from the traditional publishing world. They normally have to set things at like $25 minimum. Um, so tell me a little bit about the results of, of publishing on Kindle Direct. What, have, what has it been like since you got it up on Amazon? Well, the first couple of days that I, um, after I made a Facebook announcement about my book going live, um, I saw a lot of really good response from people uh, that I knew buying the book. And uh, I think I've sold around 25, 26 copies, which isn't, you know, a ton, but it's a start. This is my first book and um, I am really pleased with those results. And I, again, not with not having a traditional publisher and everything like that, typically they'd handle the marketing for you. And um, I, I just have a Facebook page that I made and you know, try to update it once in a while. And I'm still focusing on other writing projects of mine. And, you know, I, I think the more I do, the more interest will, you know, there will be for this book maybe a few years down the line, you know, so I'm, I'm really not disappointed about kind of a slower start with it, but it's there. And um, that I'm really excited about that. So you decided not to put it up as an ebook either, um, but you had that option, right? Yes, that's right. And I sometimes still get emails about, um, you know, do you want to make this an ebook? And I think that's a great option for some people. I felt like with my book, it was uh, it was really personal, and I wanted people to be able to feel it and hold it. And um, yeah, that's just kind of a personal choice, but it makes it really easy to turn into an ebook too. So how is Amazon able to get away with not charging you up front for the printing of a bunch of books? Well, what they end up doing is uh, what's called print on demand. So whenever a single person orders my book, or I assume any book that's been published through Kindle Direct Publishing, uh, is they, they print a single copy of that from, I'm, I'm guessing maybe they're the closest distribution center and um, then that book gets sent to that person so Amazon doesn't have to store thousands of copies of books and I don't either that's really cool that's not new that's not old technology you know that's just something 
new that they're able to do. So when you're trying to sell your book on Amazon, uh, you have to put it into categories, right? Kind of like genre categories. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and how that helps people find your book? Yeah. So uh, being a poetry book, I was able to select the poetry category. And then I think I, they had some other uh, subcategories like poetry about places, poetry about family. And I think those were, those might have been the two that I chose. So yeah, it kind of, um, so that's something like that if you type that into the search bar on Amazon, you would maybe get results that might include my book. Um, and then Amazon also will track where your book is sitting in those lists. So when mine first came out, because I had a lot of people um, go and buy it, it was something like number 19 of, you know, so many books in poetry about places. So that was kind of cool to see just how it's moving like that. What are the chances someone's just going to run across this book on Amazon and want to buy it? I think the chances of that are honestly pretty low. Um, it's, I think, something that you might find if you were going through like, you know, page after page of poetry books. But again, the more um, the more purchases have been made for a book, the higher it's going to be on the list. Um, and, uh, you know, the more outside traffic, I think, is driven to the book on Amazon is going to going to help its position there. But yeah. So what type of author is this type of publishing good for, in your opinion? I think this type of publishing is definitely good for emerging authors, people who are just getting started in their writing career and want to um, just see what it's like to create something and publish something on their own and to to have that momentum um, kind of uh, behind you with other things you might want to pursue in the future. Like, I don't think it's something that Stephen King is going to want to use, but, um, you know, an established writer like that, but that's not who it's really meant for. So, yeah, I think, I think a lot of people who are in the same boat as I am, just kind of beginning and exploring and have a passion for this would definitely benefit from it. Thank you so much, Amber. Thank you. Publishing through Amazon doesn't give you a guarantee that your book will sell. You'll still have to work really hard to market it yourself, and you'll have to edit it yourself too, which can be incredibly challenging. But it does provide an option if what you want most is to hold your own book in your hands and to put it in the hands of your friends, your family, and anyone else you can convince. This week, we're putting together a book proposal with pieces of both of these worlds. Now, you might ask yourself right now, how does putting together a book proposal help me achieve my goals? Maybe you don't want to be a published author. Maybe you don't even like writing. That's cool. A book proposal is a lot like project proposals, though. A lot of the same writing skills pitching a book go into pitching an app or a film project you want someone to fund. And if you like, you can customize the idea of this book further by deciding to write, quote unquote, about a subject or a field you intend to work in. So if you want to be a videographer, make your pretend book proposal about a book you would want to read as a videographer. Say, lighting, Ava DuVernay style. For those of you who don't know, Ava DuVernay is an absolute national treasure of a film director, one of my all-time favorites. 
Or maybe you'd write something like the field guide to shooting action sequences. Who knows? Maybe your pitch will be so good, you'll end up wanting to write the book after all. So here's what we're going to be looking at. Essentially, there's a worksheet online that has you go through and pitch your book. It asks you different questions like, who will the audience for your book be? How many pages will your book be? These are all important decisions and all things that you would pitch to a book company or to an agent. It's great practice to put ones of these together. Uh, that's the industry part of the assignment. Second, there is the calculations. Normally, the worksheet that I've found would have you do a bunch of math calculations, but instead, I've uploaded Amazon's Kindle publishing calculator. It's an Excel file, so you'll need a computer that has Excel. I do believe that you have Excel through your student account um, as a part of the Microsoft 365. So Excel, what you do is you type in the number of pages, you type in whether it's black and white or color, and it spits out an equation for how much you'll get as an author through royalty payments. This is the actual Amazon calculator. I got it off their website. So if you were to self-publish on Amazon, this is exactly the type of money that you'd be making. It's a great little tool. So the final thing that you'll need to do as a part of this assignment is design a cover for your book. If you're self-publishing, you don't have help with that. You have to design it yourself. There's a lot of design apps in the App Store, and maybe you've already got one you like. If so, great. If you don't, the one I'm going to recommend is called Canva, C-A-N-V-A. It works for both Android and iOS and has a lot of functionality that's free. The downside is when you export the photo, they put their own watermark on the output. But that's okay. I don't care for this assignment. If you end up really liking this or another program and want to pay for it, great. But that's your business. For here, if it has a watermark, that's fine. Another app that I found that I like a bit is Bazart. That's B-A-Z-A-A-R-T. Um, but it's kind of the same way with the output. I've also included links to Amazon that show different book pages, like their best-selling books. These are long lists that you can go through and you can look at the different covers. You can also Google in Amazon the type of book that you're wanting to, to create. I say Google as if I don't mean Amazon search bar. That's all I mean. Just type in the Amazon search bar poetry book or book about filmmaking. When you do that, you're going to see other covers of books in this field. This can give you some good ideas for what your cover might look like. It's not cheating to mimic, it's cheating to copy. Just look at some of the style and try to get some ideas based off of it. That's what my wife did when she published her book. She didn't copy them, but she did look at them for what types of font, what types of colors, what types of images were used. Now some of these apps come with stock photos. That's fine, but I'd rather you take your own photos. You've got a phone, camera, you know. Go ahead and take some of your own stuff, but feel free to use all the clip art in there that you want. This part of the assignment doesn't have to be too terribly difficult, but it can be a lot of fun. Just as a reminder, this class is very much a you-get-what-you-put-into-it sort of class. The amount of love and time that you put into these projects determines the value you get out of doing them. The more effort, the better the results, and the more you'll learn. What I want you to do is type up all this information and post it to your WordPress site, including the image of your book cover. What you should be able to see when you're done 
is a full proposal that answers these questions without restating them. So don't just type out the question and then type out an answer. Write a short paragraph that addresses the question being posed and then include your book cover. So as a preview for what the rest of this week is going to look like, on Tuesday and Thursday, I will have Zoom meetings. These will not be mandatory. So basically, some people were a little bit confused about the whole podcast setup. So I decided, you know what, I'm here anyway. I might as well come in on in Zoom on our class day. So at 9.30 on Tuesday and Thursday, I'm going to be available. These will be informal sessions, Q&As. You come in if you have questions, and I answer them. Please listen to the podcast episode before you come to the meeting. I know that's a little silly to say since you are currently listening to the podcast episode, but I want you to have all the information you need before you get to the meeting so that I can just clarify issues for you. I'm also thinking if we don't have a ton of questions on the first day, I'll do a tutorial. I'll go through and I'll type out a little bit of a book proposal as if I was doing the assignment myself, and you can follow along and work on yours as I'm working on mine. This could be a pattern moving forward. I think it could be a real good pattern. Um, I can use these class days to kind of preview what doing these assignments will look like because I've designed all these things to be real world. I think they'll all help you in some way. Next week is the first week that you have the option to come to class. I'm going to beg you not to do so. I don't know if y'all are keeping up with the news, but what's happening in Notre Dame and what's happening at OSU it's bad stuff. There were 25 cases at OSU. Did I say OU? I meant OSU. There were 25 cases or something at OSU, and now they've had to quarantine an entire sorority. Other schools are shutting down entirely. Y'all just got here, and I don't want to see you have to leave your dorms. I hope that you get to stay here up until Thanksgiving. That would really be good for everybody. So my recommendation is, since we're having these Zoom meetings, just hop in and talk to me there. If you feel like you need to ask me a question in person, we can do that over Zoom. There's really nothing that we can't do on Zoom that we could do in person. So that's going to be my plea to you. I can't tell you not to come to class, but I can ask you not to. That would really make life easier and better and safer for all of us. So please take that into consideration. This assignment is due Sunday night. Again, I'll go over some of this stuff. If you have any questions, email me or get, to, get in touch with me through the Remind app. I love that little app. You can send me text messages, and I can respond to you in a matter of minutes. It's a really good way for us to communicate. So if you haven't downloaded it yet, please do so. If you have any issues with WordPress, uh, get in touch with me as well. I know some people were looking around having issues with WordPress, trying to charge them money. There is a free option. I'll help you find it. I will talk to you all again next week on this podcast. I will see some of you Tuesday. I appreciate you tuning in today. Thank you for letting me talk to you about the book industry. If you have more questions and are curious about this industry, the textbook goes into a ton of detail. It's worth your time if you have an interest in this industry. In the meantime, take care, and I'll talk to you soon.